0: Alright, let's turn in our Bibles now to Revelation chapter 9. We're in Revelation 9 now. We're working through the trumpet judgments. And we're going to start in verse 1 and read all the way through verse 12. So when you find out, let's go ahead and stand up together on our feet for the reading of God's Word. God's Word is holy. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is the Word of the true and living God. We receive it for what it is. The very Word of the living God. Revelation 9 is our text. Again, 9, 1 to 12. Let's read this. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pits, and from that shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told. Verse 4, not to harm the grass of the earth or green, any green plants or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee From them. Verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair, like women's hair, and their teeth, like lions' teeth. They had breastplates, like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings, like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. to to be honest, this book has been a little bit difficult to preach through as I'm learning new things every single week. Uh, David and I, I think, have been trying to give what I believe is a very faithful, rather straightforward interpretation of the book of Revelation. We've tried pretty hard not to be pulled into uh, some of the more extreme views on how to interpret this book, and doubtless, there are many, many views honestly, all over the map on how to interpret the book of Revelation. This chapter here, notwithstanding, is one that authors, commentators, preachers, theologians, they've looked at this text and many people have done many different things with Revelation chapter 9. And so at any point, if you've been confused about this series as we're working through the book of Revelation, I just want to let you know that confusion is not your own. This is a hard book. And from time to time, I've struggled. I don't know if David has, but I feel I've struggled to try in every passage that we look at to find the real essence of the text so that in our interpretations, we are trying quite hard to resist anything that might be seen as a novel interpretation. We're not striving towards any particular mode of originality. In fact, if if I came up with anything that was completely original in this series, I would be deeply embarrassed by that. I'm not trying to be fanciful or overly creative in my interpretations just trying to give a straightforward analysis of every text if you've been confused don't worry we've been confused too it is a hard book now from time to time I think it is good though for us to pause and just to look at the way some other interpreters have in fact interpreted things differently so as you probably know and you may recall I've occasionally tried to present the different um, categories of the way people have interpreted the book of Revelation. If, If this loses anybody here, I apologize. I did a whole Sunday school message on this called Deeper Structures in the Book of Revelation. You can check that out to catch up. One of the major views of how to interpret this book is the historicist camp, which interprets the book of Revelation essentially as a history from, let's say, 33 A.D., to the time in which Christ comes back at the end of the world. And in historicist interpretations, they try to pin every text of Revelation to some particular events that has happened in church history. So historicists then would take this text, the locust plague of Revelation 9, and they have typically said that the locust plague um, resembles or symbolizes the rise of Islam in the 600s or the 700s AD. So a lot of scholars have looked at this and said, this is the incursion of, of Islam pushing up and into Europe. Okay, I don't hold that particular view myself, though I think it's, it's an interesting enough view to discuss. Whereas futurists, on the other hand, who take the book of Revelation primarily as things that are going to happen in the future, they've looked at this text and they've come up with something very, very different from the rise of Islam in the 600s futurists have looked particularly at verses 7, 8, and 9, the description of these locusts, and they've said that this is describing some sort of futuristic but very highly technical battle armaments. Some futurists have said maybe that these are some kind of uh, attack helicopters or attack drones in the air or some sort of uh, attack jets that may be used in some sort of futuristic eschatological war. Now again, that's very interesting to know, But that's not the perspective that I'm holding here. Uh, Preterists, those who interpret the book of Revelation as taking place primarily in the past, specifically in 70 AD, have said that this represents something like the Roman armies surrounding the city of Jerusalem and the panic that happened in the city of Jerusalem as the Roman armies were surrounding them by laying siege to that city. Again, very interesting, though I don't particularly hold that myself. You may be interested to know that Roman Catholic theologians have have interpreted this text as the rise of the Lutherans, which I find uh, somewhat interesting. So if you have a a Catholic friend or family member, they're going to take this text very, very differently from us. They're assuming that the locust plague is the Protestants, all right? So I'm not doing any of those things today. I'm going to give you what I think is a straight down the middle interpretation of the fifth trumpet, and let's just begin making some observations about the text. Let's just start there. So we've got the fifth trumpet, and obviously the apocalyptic writer, John the Apostle, is describing the advance of what appears to be something like a demonically supercharged locust plague. Okay, Can we agree with that so far? A demonically supercharged locust plague. In fact, we know that there's symbolism here, and there's no question about it, because of the number of times that John uses the word like, ten times in this passage. He's saying these are like certain things. So uh, just glance down at your Bible these locusts are like scorpions in 9.3, three. They're like horses in nine seven. They're like humans, interestingly, in nine seven. Lions nine eight. Chariots nine nine. Like like like. So obviously, there's some kind of symbolism happening here. I don't think there's much dispute about that. Now, locusts is an interesting choice to use as a, sim- as a symbolic, a picture of judgment, because the Old Testament many times over promises locust plagues as a judgment for unrepentant nations, yes? We think back to the uh, what we talked about last week with the plagues of Egypt. In fact, surprise, surprise, the eighth plague in the Egyptian endeavor, that was a plague of locusts, all right? So Deuteronomy 28 also says that God will send locusts from time to time. That's Deuteronomy 28, 38 to 42. Uh, unrepentant nations will be judged with locust plagues. And so that, that's not surprising then that John would sort of use locusts as a primary um, visual for judgment on unrepentant people. Now, let me just back up a second and, and give you what, what I'm going to do with this text. So here it is. I'm letting the cat out of the bag. You ready? I am going to take a far simpler approach than any of the others that I've mentioned heretofore. And I am simply going to interpret this locust plague something like a description of the demonic forces of hell as they are attempting to taunt, to torment, to tempt, to destroy, and to confuse. Okay, So I'm interpreting this as demonic attack. That's what I think is happening here in this text, and I'll try to make that clear why I believe that that's a simple, straightforward interpretation. We don't need to be more fanciful than that as we go. So let's back up to what we said last week. Um, little difference between the seal judgments and... The trumpet judgments in that the seals tend to be focused more on warning the people of God, right? The seals are more to challenge believers to be prepared to endure and to persevere in difficult times, especially oppression and persecution. Whereas the trumpet judgments seem to be more focused on God's wrath against unbelievers. So that's just a nuance there that I think is apparent in the seals versus the trumpets. mentioned that last week. Also, and and we've been really laboring to convey this, and I hope this comes through, in every passage of Revelation, practically without fail, John has a source text in the back of his mind, right? We've seen that over and over again. He's usually drawing out Old Testament source texts, he's gospelizing them, let's say, and he's appropriating them to describe situations that all believers face. That's basically how David and I have taken the book writ large. So what is John's source text here? Well, probably the one we just read. It's Joel 1 and 2. Uh, He's taking Joel 1 and 2, which we studied before we started the book of Revelation, to prepare for this book. And in the book of Joel, you probably remember that in Joel chapter 1 and 2, Joel likewise has a locust plague, remember, that is sort of a supercharged, superpowered locust plague in which the locusts themselves take on sort of the ethos of Babylonian or perhaps even Assyrian warriors. Do you remember that from Joel 1 and 2? If not, all those messages are online. You can just go back and check them out. The other thing I want to mention before I get into the main points today is simply this. This is now really, in the book of Revelation, our first foray into the study of demonology. Okay? Now, we've seen the devil before. He's been mentioned a couple times, especially in the letters, especially in chapters 2 and 3. The devil and Satan have been mentioned but usually it's, it's sort of been just an occasional reference to now we're going to see as the book progresses, a more concerted focus on the study of uh, the devil and his demonic attacks. And so that's kind of what we're being introduced to here. John spent the first majority of this book reminding us of the superiority of Christ so as to encourage us. Now we're going to start to see more sorts of descriptions of Satan and his work as we look at the locusts, and then later uh, the dragon, and then the beast, and so on with the harlot, and all these other things that are going to come in in our study of satanic work. But so today, uh, we have no choice but to get right into it. So here are the three points that I want to convey today. If you're an outliner, and I hope you are, I think taking notes is a great idea, helps you to understand the passage. Here's my three points. First, we're going to look at the malevolence of Satan. By the way, three M's. If you like alliteration, happy birthday. Three M's. Number one, we're going to look at the malevolence of Satan. Number two, we're going to look at the madness of unbelief. And then third, we're going to look at the mercies of God, which again are apparent in almost every text of Revelation, the mercies of God. So here we go. Malevolence of Satan, madness of unbelief, mercies of God. Let's dig in. Revelation 9, verse 1. Here we go. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fall in, past tense, from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. That's nine one. Now, it's interesting that John uses the word fallen, past tense. He doesn't say fallen, present tense, but fallen. Okay, so why does he do that? Well, he's describing this satanic fall as something that has already taken place. Again, the book of Revelation is not a chronological sequential history, but it's a picture of spiritual realities. And here John is going to now describe the fall of Satan. Now, that doesn't surprise us that he would describe Satan as having fallen in the past. Something that something had already happened in primordial history. We don't know exactly how Satan fell or exactly when. What we do know, though, is that by the time Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, Satan and the demons have already apparently fallen. Okay? A lot of this we have to draw together from various passages of the Bible to put this together. But there's obviously a pretty strong parallel here to Luke chapter 10... Let me just read this quickly. You stay in Revelation. Luke chapter 10, where Jesus says this, okay? It says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So far, so good. Verse 18, And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nevertheless... They shall not hurt you. So that's kind of an interesting text, isn't it? Because John may have even remembered when Jesus said that. He's describing the same thing. He's describing here the fall of Satan as like an angel being cast down. And he even uses this language of scorpions, which, interestingly enough, comes up again in Revelation chapter 9, our text today. So John seems to be describing something like the fall of the devil. And we can really get tangled up here into all kinds of questions about why God let this happen, when exactly did that happen? What was going on in heaven that God cast the devil and the demons out? But unfortunately, we're going to run up to the brick wall of having more questions about that, about that than the Bible gives answers. It's just a general picture of the Lord at some point in primordial history casting Satan down. And so John is now going to describe that in the present malevolent work of Satan and his demons. So let's go ahead and go back to our main text here. And we're going to notice here that John actually gives Satan a name or two. So skip down with me to verse 11 of our main text. Now, he's already been called Satan in this book. He's been called the devil in this book prior. But here, look at verse 11. This is interesting. They have, who's they? Well, this locust army, this demonically empowered horde of wicked tormentors. They have as a king over them the angel. So he's called an angel here, interestingly of the bottomless pit his name in hebrew is abaddon and in greek his name is called apollyon okay so we have two new names for satan here to reckon with now satan gets lots of names in the bible this isn't unusual satan is named all kinds of things he's uh, diabolos which means something like slanderer uh, he's satan which means the accuser He's called in John twelve thirty one the prince of this world, okay? Contrast to the prince of all things, which is Christ. Uh, but he is called Lord of the Flies, which is the word Beelzebub or Beelzebul. He's called that in the Gospels. He's called the evil one, the dragon, the serpent, all kinds of names for Satan. Just pause right there and contrast all of those names to the name of Christ, okay? Because Jesus is called the one who saves. Jesus. Yeshua. The Lord saves. Jesus is called friend. Jesus is called brother. Jesus is called redeemer and intercessor and king of kings and lord of lords. And all of these names are to remind you that Satan is in fact a very wicked being and he has your destruction in mind, doesn't he? Yes, he does. That's why John gives him these two names of Abaddon in Hebrew and Greek, Apollyon, both of them, by the way, they mean the same thing, either destruction or destroyer. And that's what he wants for your life. okay? Destruction and to destroy you. Something more. There could be a bit of a play on words here, and commentators are divided on this, with the word Apollyon, because the word means destroyer. But can you think of any Greek gods that sounded like that with phonetic similarity? What, what, what Greek god do you recall? Apollo, yes, thank you for saying that. Now here's something that's interesting. Um, the Roman emperors, Nero and Domitian, they did from time to time claim to be something like Apollo manifested in the flesh. Okay? So they took on divine attributes. Nero and Domitian and other Roman emperors, they wanted to be worshipped. And if you were to go to the temples that worship the god Apollo, you would find as the emblem for the temples to Apollo, guess what? You ready? The locust as a symbol. That's right. And so there may be here somewhat of a slight from John as a a, sort of a subtle but very clear attack on the Roman emperors who claim to be Apollo incarnate. He is clearly assigning them with the demonic powers of Satan. That's what he's doing here. If that's true, and I think there's a strong likelihood that that might be true, John is also giving us a warning about what happens when satanic powers of demonism and paganism and statist authoritarianism combine. That's a real witch's brew of evil right there. And I think we're going to see that again with the beast coming up later on as we work through this book. So there's a warning here about what happens when satanic power and governmental power merge together. That is a really, really nasty concoction. Okay, So what I want you to know about this so far is that Satan is a malevolent enemy. He truly wants to destroy you. He wants nothing less than to ruin your life, to ruin your reputation, to ruin your marriage, to ruin uh, your work productivity. Satan has no good designs for you or for me. He is the destroyer. So what? Are we like, just totally subject to him? Like a locust plague? No. This is a mixed metaphor. Yes, the locust plague is a prevalent metaphor here. And if a locust plague were to settle upon you, you would be rather defenseless, right? Because what can you do? I mean, imagine a locust plague coming over and attacking your crops. What are you going to do? Go out and shake a stick at them? No, that's not going to be of any avail. That's why it's a mixed metaphor here of not only the locust plague, which you would be helpless to fight off, but there's also a militaristic connotation here. Again, read it again. Look especially at verses 7 and following here. How many times John reminds us that there's a battle taking place. You're not just helpless, but there's a fight. Why do I say that? Because they look like horses prepared for battle. They have breastplates of iron. They have chariots with horses running into battle. They fight, they sting, they attack. But does that mean, Christian, that you are defenseless? No, not at all. Why not? Because you have the armor of the spirit that Ephesians 5 and 6 tell us about, right? Ephesians 6 it is, right? Chapter 6. You have that armor. You have the breastplate of righteousness, a better one than this. You have the sword of the Spirit, which is greater than the stinging tails of the enemies here. And so what do you do when Satan attacks you? Do you just sit there and let him destroy everything in your life like a locust attack? No, you fight. You fight back with what God has given you. It's one of the reasons I love the book, Pilgrim's Progress. You remember the scene, right? When Christian has to fight Apollyon in the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't just roll over like a helpless lump, he fights. And it's a tough fight. He has to fight all day. And finally, though, he, he thrusts him and he attacks him with the sword, which is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and Satan is buffeted and flees from him. So you fight back, Christian. Don't just be helpless here to the malevolence of Satan. All right, that's number one. Let's go to number two. Not only does this passage, I think, describe the malevolence of the evil one, but clearly here, I think there seems to be something of an indication of what we might call the madness of unbelief. Hang with me. The madness of unbelief. Well, where do I get that? Well, look at verse 2. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke. So this is going to be a new image here that we're going to have to see multiple times in this text. Smoke. okay. Like the smoke of a great furnace, that's two if you're counting, And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke of the shaft. That's three in one verse. So smoke here begins to rise from the foul pits of the abyss. Total contrast to the incense of the saints, which is like the prayers of God. We saw that earlier in the book. So we have the sweet-smelling incense of the prayers of the people of God. And now here we have this dark, demonic, thick, choking smoke. And I just want you to dwell on the idea of smoke here for just a minute because because what does smoke do to you? Just think about when you're around it. What does it do to you? Is it an irritant? Yeah, of course it irritates you. But worse sometimes. A smoke blinds the eyes, right? Uh, smoke uh, confuses the senses. When you, when you have smoke up in your face, like imagine you're sitting at a campfire and you've all had this happen because you're beautiful and smoke follows beauty, as we all know, yes? And what happens? The smoke comes right in your face and at first, you're, you're just kind of trying to ignore it because it's, it's coming on strong. And then all of a sudden, you, just, you have to get up and turn away and walk away. Why? Because smoke is blinding to the eyes. And it's, it's disconcerting. And if you get it into the, into the lungs, then it, it causes you to choke. And clearly, there's this kind of like obscuring aspect that smoke has. Is it causes you to not be able to see clearly. And believe it or not... There's something really, I think, in connection here between the smoke that we're looking at this week and the wormwood that we studied last week, wherein both of them, if they're taken into the body in great measure, they do have the ability to interrupt cognitive processes. Because if you're, if you're breathing in a lot of smoke, what happens? Think about it f- physiologically, right? The brain can't get oxygenized like it needs to. And so you get dizzy, you get uh, distressed, you become confused. And all of this, what it does is it turns us, it, it kind of forces us to turn away from what is true. And so that's why smoke is sort of the pervading metaphor here. Now, it, get, it gets worse, and this is going to be the lowest point of the sermon. Because look what happens in verse 6. Look, look what happens here. I wish I could shield you from this, but this is an ugly verse, and it's in the Bible, so here we go. Verse 6. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. That's a serious verse, right? You don't want that to happen to you. Uh, Sin, when it runs its course in our lives, sin induces deep, deep and unbearable shame and guilt sin is a form of what we might say torment of the soul which is exactly what the demons here are trying to induce torment of the soul right so i'm going to introduce a definition of sin that you probably haven't seen before but i think it's right now bear with me here how do you define sin properly i'll give you a couple suggestions and then i'll give you a new one well if i was going to try to define sin i might turn to the westminster shorter catechism best place to get definitions. Shorter Catechism 14, sin is any want of conformity or actual transgression of the law of God. Good definition, right? Nod your heads like good Presbyterians, okay? But that's not the only way you can define sin. You can also say that sin is uh, original, sin is omission, and sin is commission. You can look at it like that, too. Or you can quote R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul quote him, good thing to do. Sproul said that sin is cosmic treason against the holy God. That's a good definition too. But I'm going to give you another definition that maybe you haven't heard before. Here it is. Sin is the cognitive dissonance of spiritual insanity. That's what sin is. It's cognitive dissonance of spiritual insanity. Sin is insane. Think about it. Think back to Pharaoh. Let's just take Pharaoh as an example, right? John's got Pharaoh in view here too with the plague images and things like that. Did you ever read the plague stories of the book of Exodus and you're thinking to yourself, why doesn't this guy just turn? You ever thought that? Like how many times is God going to smite this man and he doesn't get it? Why doesn't he get it? It's the cognitive dissonance of spiritual insanity in his life. God, time and time again, shows Pharaoh in Exodus 7-12 to that he is more powerful than Pharaoh, that he is more powerful than the Egyptian gods, that there is no hope other than the hope that Yahweh, the one true and living God, provides for him, but Pharaoh cannot receive this, and every time God judges him with a plague, God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. Right, but Pharaoh is also hardening his own heart, such to the point that you get all the way up to the very moment of the Passover, and just imagine this with me, if you will. Here's Pharaoh; he's literally standing on the edge of the Red Sea, and he's seen the uh, the people of God go into the sea and be delivered. And he's got his own army standing behind him. And he's saying to himself, what am I going to do now? This God has judged me ten times. Is this going to go any better for me? But no, it won't. Because the cognitive dissonance of spiritual insanity, rather than him turning to God in mercy for clemency and forgiveness, what does he do? He bids his army full steam ahead. And so the Lord drowns them. And rids them from the face of the earth. How could Pharaoh be so hardened as to run into his own death? Answer: the cognitive dissonance of spiritual insanity. And here's the problem with sin: is it is obviously insane. Okay, let me give you a couple examples. Um, I'm, I'm not shooting at anybody here. I'm just throwing out examples. The alcoholic. He knows that he's destroying his liver. (laughs) He knows this in the mind. He knows that his alcoholism is is ruining his relationships. His marriage is suffering, let's say. I'm making up stories here. Uh, His work productivity is hindered by this. But does he at any point turn? No, he presses on. Why? Because it's the cognitive dissonance of spiritual insanity. He will go on, he will press on. No matter what consequences are laid before him, he will press on with this unless and until the Lord himself changes this man's heart. He is insane in sin. Okay? No amount of threats or consequences will turn him from it unless the Lord changes his heart. Uh, Or, again, just making up examples here, take the gambler. He knows that the odds are all on the house. Why do you think Las Vegas builds these massive casinos? Because they're winning, right? And he knows this. Like, he knows how to do math, and yet he's going to press on, and he's going to risk everything. He's going to put his own finances in jeopardy. He's going to risk losing his own house. Why? Because in that moment, the moment in which sin is influencing him, it is the cognitive dissonance of spiritual insanity. He literally thinks he's going to be the one guy that beats the odds. And he's not. He always loses. Okay? Or take the pornographer, for instance. Again, I'm not shooting at anybody, just throwing out examples. The pornographer has to know. He must know that he's ruining his marriage. That any hope of having a normal marital relation is damaged every single time. He turns back to that same sin over and over again, but he does it. Why? Because spiritual insanity. It's cognitive dissonance. And so you can put that into any example you want to. I'm just throwing out examples here. But any time we willingly persist in sin, it's like somebody who says, I have no other escape from this than death. And that's why verse 6 says, they will long to die, but death will flee from them. Because sin has worked its way in. They've breathed in too much demonic smoke such that they even despair of life. And death itself is no refuge for the person who is trapped in their sin. Okay? They may think that death is the only deliverance, but it's not available to you in that way. Okay? So the madness of unbelief. Do not persist in it. And finally then, let's turn here to another gospel hope that John gives us. John just keeps bringing the gospel back into the story. Have you noticed that? Somebody says, "Hey, Revelation's a scary book." Not if you're looking for the gospel, because it's just everywhere. Someone says, "Hey, these all these demons and stuff, these monsters, they freak me out." Well, look to Christ, because he's right here. Look at this. It's right in the text. Look at verse 3. Then the smoke Uh, Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions over the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. But here we go. You ready? But only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Who has the seal? Believers. Believers. Revelation 7 two to three right looked at that text multiple times now there is a seal available to you from which or by which you can be protected from the malevolent works of Satan and from the madness of unbelief. That seal is the saving work of God in Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. Um, in fact, there's actually three glimmers of hope in this text and I'm going to tick these off to you as a, B and C here as we Begin to conclude. I'm not done yet. Don't get excited, but I'm almost done, I promise. Let me show you three glimpses of gospel hope in this text. Here's A. The abyss itself. You say, well, how's that hope? Well, I'm actually really interested in the abyss, and I discovered this a little bit too late this week in my sermon preps to dive into it. I want to go in further maybe next week or some other time I can study this. The word bottomless pit, as it's translated here in the ESV, is the Greek word abyss. And so I just thought to myself, well, let me do a quick word search of abyss and just see what it means, see how it's used in the Bible. And I came to a most interesting text. Uh, It's Luke 8, 31. And again, you can just stay in Revelation if you want to, but maybe write down Luke 8, 31. Do you remember the scene in Luke 8 where Jesus is casting out the demons called Legion and that man who had been driven insane by sin, right? Remember him? Legion. And what does Jesus do? He cast the demons where? Who who remembers? Into the pigs. Do you recall what the demons said right before Jesus cast them into the pigs? They pleaded with him. They said, please don't cast us into, you ready? The abyss. The demons dread the abyss. And one of the things that we're reminded of in this text is though the demons are pictured as coming out of the abyss here, we know, right, Revelation 20 is coming sooner than we think, and they're going to be cast into the lake of fire from which there is no escape. And so part of the gospel here is the reminder that even as the demons are set free for this short time from the abyss, their destination is the lake of fire. The Lord Christ will deliver you from the work of Satan. Put your hope in Him, He will save you. Okay, so there's one gospel hope. Here's another one. Um, the phrase five months is mentioned twice in this text. Did you notice that? Interesting. We got it in 9 5. They were allowed to torment them for five months. And we have it in 910, they had tails that sting like scorpions and their power hurt people for five months and it is in their tails. What's the deal with five months? Here's the deal, five months uh, is fairly well known to be the life cycle of the locust. April to September is locust season, okay? Locusts from uh, embryo to nymph to full grown juvenile and then adult, it's about a five month cycle. And the point here is that if you can weather the storm for five months, there will be a time when the temptation finally comes to an end. And, and believe it or not, Christian, like I don't want overgenera- to overgeneralize here, but there's a real truth to the suggestion that you can weather a temptation. Did you know that? <laughs> like you actually can. When you're tempted, must you fail to that temptation? No. No. Resist it. Deliverance is coming. Resist it. Five months is a relatively short time. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't some sins that are really difficult. Please don't hear me like over- oversimplifying this text. All I'm going to tell you is simply this. If you, as a Christian with the armor of the Spirit, would resist temptation for even five minutes sometimes, what you're going to find is that temptation goes. It passes away let's say you're tempted to gossip. If you can just zip the old pie hole for five minutes, you're probably going to make it through, okay? If you are tempted to covet your neighbor's house or his new car, can you turn away for five minutes because you might feel a little bit better after a nice decaf cup of coffee and a good meal, okay? You're probably going to weather that storm if you'll just put up a fight, and it's so true for so many temptations in our lives. You know, we, we're, we're kind of like spiritual weaklings at times. This moment we get tempted, we think we've got to give in. Not true. Fight it for five minutes. Try that this week. Come back and tell me if you had any spiritual victory. I guarantee you probably will. Okay? Don't want to overgeneralize and oversimplify. All I'm saying is that temptations tend to come very intense like a locust plague, and then they do pass on and pass away. Okay? Final thing here. Uh, let's just let's just recall the seal one more time in verse 4. Uh, the demons only seem to have real power over those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. How do you get the seal? You want the seal. You need the seal. How do you get it? Uh, the only seal that is available to us is that sealing work of the Holy Spirit who saves us through His changing our hearts, even as we turn to the Lord in repentance and faith, okay? If if you need to know more about the seal, the sealing, saving work of Jesus and his blood, please come talk to me. Please come talk to one of the elders. We would love to introduce you more and more to the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Your hope is there. With that...